It's time for Knox Talk, a behind-the-scenes look at the business side of college sports. Featuring Paul Sickman from Knox Sports and Brandon Parks from the Vol Network. Now for today's show. Welcome to another edition of Knox Talk. Today is Tuesday, July 20th. I am indeed Paul, and my co-host from Rocky Top and the Ball Network is Brandon Parks. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning, Paul. Hope you're doing well. We're 44 days to kick off for the Tennessee Bowling Green game, the big matchup on uh, Thursday night, September the 2nd. So rest assured, there's a lot There's a lot going on on Rocky Top. I bet. 44 days, man. I mean, a month and a half is ready to go. Whew. Uh, okay, so today, folks, we're going to talk about the actual sales pitch, which something that Brandon is intimately familiar with. Uh, cold calling is one thing, but at some point, you have to close the deal, and that's something that we have both uh, had success and failure with over the years. And so I want to talk a little bit today, Brandon, you know, about the sales pitch itself. And I know that we've, you know, you know, 20 years ago, you know, we had pieces of paper we printed out and and, and then it got digital, and now I, I tend to go back to paper. I, I'm, I'm probably more paper than, than digital. But I wanted to talk a little bit about that whole process. And so the first kind of topic there, and I think it's an obvious answer, but I wanted to kind of go through it, is, is in-person or not? I know it's not possible to do in-person with everybody, um, but it, from a kind of a hit rate, uh, from the in-person standpoint versus the not in-person standpoint, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I am 110% in person. Um, and we've talked a lot about in our, our podcast over over the past couple of years about our effectiveness in relationship building and so much of, of, of what we market and sell is is a relationship. And, and it's really, and I think we learned this during COVID, it's really hard to develop, especially new relationships when you're doing it over a video conference or you're trying to do it over a phone. So, you know, I much prefer to be in front of someone and face to face. Um, and that has always been far more um, effective for me. And, and kind of take it the next step. I, I agree with that. I think it's not even arguable, but do you think Zoom closed the gap? Has it made it, I mean, it, that's, you know, it's almost in person. I mean, it, it, do you think it, it, we can be effective over Zoom or do you still, because I don't, I think Zoom is okay, but I think Zoom almost became impersonal over the last 12 months where people were looking at squirrels and, and, and watching their kids bounce around behind them. And I feel like Zoom almost got to the point where it's, it's not, it's just not there. But I think it closed the gap a little bit and it serves a purpose. It, it does serve a purpose. I think it's really hard over the Zoom platform or the video platform to, to be able to develop a new relationship mm-hmm. and to go through the sales process. Now, I do think it does have as, has its advantages. I think we can use Zoom in activation applications moving forward. Yeah. So versus, versus going out and driving to see a client, if we need to jump on a call or a zoom call to go through an activation list for the upcoming football season, then that's something that's probably more of an effective use of our time. Um, But, but in the initial stages, and I'll say this, even with clients that we've had for years that have been on board with us, I much prefer to go through the renewal process or the new sales process 
face to face. And and you know, in in my former life, when I was act- actively selling and not buying, you know, my office was at the stadium, and it was it was a huge hit for me. And I know it's not convenient for a client always, but it, it was always a big advantage uh, to be able to walk around the facility and talk through everything when you're walking around a facility as opposed to sitting in their boardroom, which is not always possible, like I said, but it is a big deal to be able to get them on, you know, on site and be able to show them even theoretically uh, what they're going to get on that video board. You'll see the following on, you know, here's where your signage is. Here's where we're going to promote. Here's where you're going to be outside in the parking lot. All those things on site are a huge advantage. Oh, hundred percent. Um, we, we talk about the importance of face-to-face meetings, take it the next step. If you can do the face-to-face meeting on your campus or in your sports facilities or one of your athletics venues, I think the likelihood that that something positive is going to come out of that meeting is it goes up exponentially And, and I'll take it almost a step further with, with all of the digital technology that we now have in our sports venues it's relatively easy to bring a prospect to Neyland Stadium, for example, and already have artwork prepared and waiting on the prospect's arrival. And it's it's a great surprise. So you walk someone in there and they're trying to think in their minds, what would a relationship look like? Well, here's what it might look like. And they walk in and, you know, you get the the wow effect. Yeah. You get the pop. Uh, yeah. There's no, no doubt. And that that's, and I know that it's funny, but we just, we just did a, a tour of Virginia a couple weeks ago. And I think we saw like four or five facilities and one of the four or five had done that had done. And it was, you know, you're not going to blow us away, but it was still, you knew that that school was a little better prepared to do their job when they, <laughs> when they had, yeah. when they taken the time to make the whole stadium pop with your stuff. No, I agree. And I think, I think some of it, um, some of it goes with the, the whole thought of, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And if you if you go those extra steps, then it, it presents a vision and it lets it lets it lets whomever you're meeting with know that hey, I've put some thought into this. Yeah. And and hey, if we if you guys did jump on board, this is the kind of proactive thinking you're gonna get out of us. And, and I think that matters. Yeah, no, it does matter. I got another one, Brandon, that's going to be a little bit more difficult to answer because I'm not sure there is a right answer. So when you're given a pitch, and I know that you probably have done it the same way, same way, same way, but I, I actually changed this up based on, because, um, I, I, again, I think internally sell. Let's say you and I finished negotiating a deal. I have to then turn around as a company and then sell that again to our client. So I do the same thing you do um, all the time. And, and here, so here's my question. The cost of the sponsorship, first or last in the pitch. And I'm going to give you an example. I traditionally go last because I think that's what most people do. But I have been more and more, uh, especially with the bigger ones, I have come out of the box with a number. I'm going to give you a great example. Just this, this last week, we had, we, we're negotiating a deal right now on behalf of a client at Madison Square Garden, which is just mind-blowing numbers, right? I mean, Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden gets... You know, the, the the rep I have has two has two different clients that are uh, that are eight figures, uh, and we're negotiating wow. a deal um, which is not of that ilk, um, but it's still a huge number for our client. And and so, in order to pull this off, I couldn't have that band aid be pulled at the end of the pitch because I'm afraid that by then, you know, the the anxiety would drive them nuts. So I basically walked in and told them. You know, here's what happens at Madison Square Garden. Here is the kind of numbers that other clients command at Madison Square Garden and what, what those things look like. 
And what we have is X. So I basically had to almost, you know, sell down and say, you know, I had to set a reality right away, tell the number right away, and then all that anxiety went away. And it may have been huge and it may have been, you know, uncomfortable, but then the rest of the meeting, there's no mystery left. And I was able to kind of go down the road and say, here's all the things that we get for that. And hopefully we justified it. And I think we did in that particular pitch, but it, 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 I've done that more than once here lately, where I basically, especially when it's a bigger number and I'm a, I'm a little bit fearful that the number's going to scare them, uh, I kind of want to get that Band-Aid off first. How do you handle things? You know, I think we've done it. We've done it a lot of different ways. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I probably do it on a case-by-case basis. Um, and I am, um, you and I talk a lot. And so our conversations are probably very similar to this. But if I send you a 40-page deck and it's got all these beautiful bells and whistles and so forth, while it it's gorgeous, does Paul have time to really look through all 40 pages? Or are you going to flip to the page that's got the asset list and the price point first to get an idea of what we're talking about? And then, And then certainly if there's interest from that standpoint – then you're going to dig a little bit deeper into the proposal. Um, I've done it. I've done it where I have a summary of the assets first with the price and then all the detail on the assets to follow. Um, I've done it in a complete reverse order where I I lead with the assets and then I have the summary and the pricing at the end. And, And each, each case is really where I'm at in the process with the poten- with the potential client. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there has been a lot of dialogue around a lot of ideas and I feel like they have a good understanding of what we're talking about, then I'm like you, let's just rip the Band-Aid off and let's show them in the beginning, hey, here's everything that we're going to include and here's what the investment level looks like. Yeah, and, and, um, and to answer your question, I absolutely go to page 39 first. Um, there's no yeah. About, yeah, yeah. Um, and... and because when you think about it, as fast as the world is moving and everything that, that marketers have on their plate, they don't have time as great as I believe my novel is about the University of Tennessee. They don't have time to go through 40 slides. Let's cut to the chase. Let's give them the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about. And, and let's lead with that. And, and I do that a fair amount now. Yeah. Uh, and it leads me to the next one, which is, I, I think, maybe the... It's a philosophy, um, and again, I know how you and I deal with each other. But we'll, and I already know the answer to this question from you and I. But but this is kind of a general question for people out there that are working in this in this world. And that is, do you you know the old model in sales was if you had a hundred thousand dollar proposal, you pitched it at one fifty, but you knew you were going to settle. And I think I'm not sure that that is really not wasteful now because that negotiation process. We certainly our jobs to negotiate. We we're, we're going to we're going to ask for the most for the least. Um, period in the story. But I tell you what, I, I, I like getting to the finish line as quickly as possible. And I, I don't like it when schools or, you know, any other property comes to us with a false number and, and with the idea that they're going to negotiate. I, I'd much rather have them come to me with a number and we'll talk assets and we'll talk asset allocation uh, in terms of, of getting there. And I think that as a client, I would think that they would probably want the same. But I guess from a philosophy standpoint, have you guys come out with the number uh, or do you guys come out with a number you believe is fair? And, and then if they're going to say, hey, I can only do, I can do 20000 less, do we talk about asset allocation? Yeah, uh, you nailed it. Um, to me, the negotiation process has, has evolved more to what assets are included in the package versus what the price point is. And part of the reasoning here 
is the whole conversation around intellectual property rights, partner designations. And a lot of the way that we sell here is based on a corporate sponsor tier formula. So if you spend X amount, then you qualify for these assets. But if you spend more and you arrive at another tier, then you qualify for these additional assets. So we really, in a lot of instances, get the price point at least 95 to 97% of the way there. And then we negotiate the assets. And so, so if you, if you want to have an intellectual property rights usage at Tennessee, to access the power T, that's a that's a minimum six figure annual commitment. And so we have to start there because that's the threshold that's been established. And from there we negotiate assets. Yeah. And the most painful part there is that that is the most uh, amoeba like number uh, across the country. There is no sameness from school to school uh, and from category to category. And that's just reality, right? I mean, if you are the yeah. if you are the official uh, you know, tire or you're the official bank, those are two different numbers. Uh, and the IP rights can float up and down uh, based on all kinds of things. And that's probably the hardest piece because all the other assets, you can kind of come up with a number. You can say, okay, over time, over time, you know, experience right. teaches you, hey, this is this, this is this. And you can be close and all those things. But it, it's <laughs> it's that daggum IP right um, mess, uh, which makes the, the deal um, uncomfortable for both sides because it's just an, it's, it's an amorphous number and I, I get it and it's hard, but it's, it's just category driven and it's hard to do. But the bottom line is you, you basically say, Hey, here's our number. Uh, you know, after you get the IP right question out of the way, here's our number. And we feel like this is the number. And so if we're going to have to negotiate down from here, we're going to be talking about assets. Yeah. And, 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 you know, every school's different. And I mean, you, you nailed it. Um, and, and they're called universities for a reason because they're universes unto themselves. And there's really different models at every property that I'm sure you negotiate with. And, and, and I'm not saying that the model we use at Tennessee is right and the model that another school uses is wrong. I think there's, there's different ways to effectively use co collegiate sports marketing. Um, but, but ultimately, um, at the end of the day, the intellectual property rights are the most valuable assets we have. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, when I started here back in 2000, sponsorship was two 30 second radio spots in the game broadcast, a half page ad and souvenir program and two football season tickets. And that was sponsorship, right? It has evolved into what, what to me is much more conceptual selling where you're going to market almost as if you're an advertising agency and here's your collegiate sports marketing strategy. And, you know, we really lead with partner designation. So if you're the official bank of the balls, or if you're a corporate partner of the balls and we lead with intellectual property rights and we build sponsorship around conceptual, unique content owning ideas. And then we backfill it with all the things that we sold back in 2000. So then comes the radio spots, then comes the print ads, then comes the, the season tickets. And, and season tickets almost aren't enough today. There has to be more of an experiential uh, element to the package. So, um, you know, I, and we're just evolving. We continue to evolve. And without going down the NIL discussion route, that's going to, we're going to continue to evolve around that. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. And, and, and 
So talking about going back to the pitch itself, uh, Brandon, just in, in terms of, I mean, one of the things that drives me crazy and I, I, is, is the reading of the pitch. You know, I, I do these every day, all day, and I cannot stand it when someone reads me the pitch. I'm capable of reading. So, you okay. know, you got to blow through, summarize, get to the end. I, I get all that. But when, when you talk about um, the deck itself, let's say, you know, that someone is not on site and, and you're going to have to do an initial call or an initial Zoom or whatever it is, uh, great question for me, because I'm asking this honestly, because I never know the answer to this question. How far in front of the actual pitch do you send the deck? I've had, I've had schools send me decks like 30 seconds, and I'm like, come on, you're killing me. And I've had, you know, and, but you also don't want to have the night before where they have so much time that they have 400 questions and you can't get through the deck. What is the, uh, what is the appropriate time to send this thing before you have to do a Zoom or a, a call? Um, tactically... You know, I will send it. I'm not going to send it 30 seconds before the call. I would prefer not to send it the day before the call. I'm somewhere like an hour or two hours before the call. So if they want to have an opportunity just to digest it, they can do so. But as a seller, I take a lot of pride in my ability to present the the conceptual presentation part of it. And, and I, I have never gone down the path where I just read the slides verbatim uh, because you're exactly right. You can do that yourself. Um, but no one as a seller at a specific property, no one can tell your story like you can. And I feel like we're storytellers. That's what, that's what we do. We're, we're, we're storytellers around something that most people are passionate about. And, and I would, I would much more have the human interaction and me be able to present uh, versus it just being a deck handoff, uh, because I feel like you you lose some of that momentum and some of that emotion and some of that passion that goes that goes into it. Now we've we've done a fair. I mean, COVID forced us to do a fair amount of these presentations via Zoom, and and so you've got the shared screen, and so you're having a conversation, but then the presentations up there as well. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you a hundred percent. I've been through plenty of those where someone's just read the deck and it, if you're going to do that, you might as well just send it and just ask for their feedback. I just think of, of high school again, where you're just sitting there in a, in a, in a classroom and the teacher's reading and you, you've lost them. As soon as they, as soon as they start reading what's on the board, you're like, good night. And your, and your head starts dropping. So, but anyway. well, and, and let me, let me, let me say this. Let me interject this. I will spend as much time preparing my presentation notes as I do actually preparing the deck. 100%. Because yeah, I, I, the deck is, is just, a, it's just a guide and I have to live off of it. So everything on there, I'm going to assume they're going to get, and then I've got to, I've got to have a hundred things written to the side that are going to entertain, be funny, personal stories, whatever it is to keep them engaged yeah. as we go page to page. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and kind of the last question I had for, for us, because it's, it, it's, and this is, probably the hardest thing to, to answer because it's a case by case, but it is true. At some point, the client has to have the power over the decision. And I don't mean like they get to sign it or they get to say yes to the deal, but you're making a presentation and there has to be room for interaction and go in a different direction. Now, whether that's, and, and this works way better when you're in person, it's a little bit harder when someone's sitting in a room to room, you're a zoom or you're on a phone call or whatever, but you got someone in any of those cases, if they had nothing in it, it's pretty rare for a client to say yes. In other words, it, it, let's say you present 
you know, here's your 12 assets, IP, 12 assets. Here's our wonderful new idea for you. And the client, how many times they go, yes, where do I sign? You know, it, it, right. yeah, it, more often than not, you're going to have a situation where you have to have some interaction. And even if they end up exactly where you wanted them to end up, <laughs> they still have to have the power to own it. Right. And, and so that's hard. But the flexibility, the ability during the sales pitch to understand that the client needs to have some power is crucial to getting them to say yes. I agree. Um, and, and so much. And it, I guess this just goes back to sort of old school, old, the old school way of selling. Me as a seller presenting to you and not necessarily in theory thinking about what your client's needs are. You're just trying to move inventory. Right. That doesn't do either party a lot of good because right. that's not sustainable long term. So I, I make it a goal in every one of those presentations that we may have modifications or tweaks or adjustments based on the insight that the client can give you that you just would not know as much research as you've done. There are certain things going on in their world at the moment that become hot buttons. And if you could be a solution provider for those things, then, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you do want the, the, the client to own the ideas and the concepts because ultimately they have to go back on their side with their marketing team or, or to right. a vice president or a CEO and sell it through. And it's a lot easier if you equip them with all the ammunition that they need to make it feel like it's their own pitch. And then ultimately you want to make them look as good as possible in, in front of those that they have to answer to. That's right. And it's just, it's just hard. I mean, it is hard because you have, you know, Hey, we, this is what we, we believe. And, and you, by the time you get to the, that part of the process, you believe it so much that you almost lost sight of the, you know, the forest through the trees. And so, yeah. you know, we have to, you have to open up and you have to say, okay, where are you going here? What did you think about this idea? It doesn't work for you. And when they say, here's why it doesn't, um, that's when you've got the, all those notes come in handy because you say, okay, got it. And so this is, this is where I think we should go then. Uh, and I love when sellers do that to me. Um, and, and it took me years to be able to get there when I was selling because sometimes, again, I, I get so kind of you know, dialed into what, what we're doing here and that, that when I wasn't a good, a good enough listener um, in that process. And, and it took years to be able to say, okay, I'm, I, we've got to stop every Every time that we're going in, in a, you know, two words, two roads diverged in a yellow wood kind of moment, I've got to be able to listen and figure out where they're going so that I can take them there. Yeah. And you know, that, that's been an issue for years and years and years. Ever, I guess ever since selling began is, is sellers often don't listen enough. Um, and, and most, and I'm, I've been guilty of it. Um, <clears throat> you have to, you have to be a very good listener. You have to be a persuasive listener too. You have to, you have to read into what someone's telling you, and, and because ultimately, what are what are we worried about once the sales process is complete? Well, how then are we going to keep this client involved for years to come? Uh, because in our world, one-year agreements are not what we're after. We want long-term relationships, and and you you almost begin the sales process, certainly the activation process, with the renewal in mind. So. Everything that you're doing, all the assets that you've included within the package, you want those things to hit home uh, because then it's going to make that renewal process easier when when that time does come. Last question here, Brandon, and then we'll uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap this one up early. Do, 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 when you have a client, you feel like they're close. Do you send them 
you send them the, uh, the, the the care package of Tennessee stuff before they say yes, or do you wait till they say yes and then dump it out on them? I pay it forward. I always send it before. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sharing the love and the passion around uh, my institution and my university. Um, and, and part of that job is, uh, is, is trying to, uh, to have product placement in the marketplace. And um, so I've, I've always uh, sent those things before the clubs. It doesn't hurt probably that you have what a half million dollar trade with your local gift shop. So you can... <laughs> yeah, I guess I should rephrase the answer and say, well, it's based on the amount of trade that I have on an annual basis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Brandon. Again, uh, on behalf of Brandon Parks, I am Paul Sickley with Knox Sports. Thank you for listening to yet another edition of Knox Talk. We'll be back soon. Take care.